quality of the product, how it's going to stack up just as good, if not better, than what you're feeding now. I'm not going to talk about all the things we do for dog sports and working dogs in general. Uh, I'm not going to talk about all the winners that are using Joy Dog Food, all the world champions and trucks and all that stuff that have won, been won on Joy Dog Food. Not even going to bring it up. What I want to talk about is how to get it. Uh, you want Joy Dog Food, go into your locally independent owned store it could be a hardware store a feed store a farm and home heck we've even sold feed out of a barber shop before if they've got a storefront we've got a distributor that can probably get them some dog food for you we like to do business at the same place that you grew up in that same little feed store that you bought your first pocket knife in and listened to your first hunting stories in those are the places that we like doing business so go into that place, give them your business, give them our info, go to joydogfood.com, our office number's on there, there's a contact us page, depending on what region they're in, they will get in touch, they will get that dealer in touch with one of the sales reps who will get them some dog food. So that's who we want to do business with, that's how we want to sell dog food, we want to do it with American small business, with an American product. And we've been doing it since 1945 with no recalls. So go to joydogfood.com, go into that store, and let us help you get fueled by joy. All right, ladies and gentlemen, we got some uh, exciting stuff coming up this week on the Fueled by Joy Working Dog Podcast. It is the debut of one of our new hosts, Mr. Mike Green from Cottonville Road Kennels. Uh, Mike is a beagle specialist. Uh, where I, you know, kind of lean towards the coon hounds and, and my area of expertise, uh, Mike brings that same sort of um, tenacity and love and dedication uh, to the small dogs. The beagles, the little hounds. And so uh, when it comes to a, a beagle guest, Mike's going to take over the hosting duties from now on. And this is his debut. I think he done a fantastic job. 
the the content was great. Um, the guests were great. And so, uh, you know, I hope you guys enjoy. This is going to be a regular occurrence. It's not going to be an every week occurrence, but it's going to happen from time to time. And we appreciate Mike as a loyal joy customer and as one of our new hosts. So, uh, you know, the end goal for all of this is we want to bring you a joy podcast every day through the week, uh, Monday through Friday. Uh, Mike's going to help us do that. Uh, we're going to try to get more content out there concerning more breeds. We already have the Competition Corner News Desk. We already have Tree Dog Tuesday. Uh, I've been doing a lot of work on the gun dog side, and I've loved that. You know, Callie Simpson, and, you know, they're, we're just finishing up that podcast, so that's fantastic. Um, you know, we, we're really wanting to branch out and, and highlight all these working dogs, and Mike's going to help us do it. Beagles are cool. Uh, the competition aspect is cool. The breeding aspect is cool. Uh, and so we would just, we just want to do it. We love it. This is the Bronco Beagles, Branco Beagles podcast is, is it, you know, is the debut and it's, it's a good one. So, uh, hope you guys enjoy. Uh, once again, thank you to Mike and, uh, we'll get started here. All right, good afternoon, good morning to you, wherever you may be in the United States. This is Mike Green, and this is your Fueled by Joy Working Dog Podcast. And today I am blessed with the opportunity to have uh, two people that are that go without introduction. Um, they need no introduction, should I say. Uh, Branco and Frida Kirpan, and we have them here today, and it is an exciting time. So I want to welcome both of you to the uh podcast this morning and uh thank you guys for being with me today um um if you would uh let's go ahead and get started with uh um, a brief introduction if you would just tell me tell our, our listeners a little bit about yourselves and uh something that we may not even know about you uh where you came from where you at and where you came from okay i'll start i was born in a small town in Croatia. Um, it's, the name of the town was Gospic. And uh, that's where I had the first dog. Uh, first dog was uh, a mutt. And uh, she looked like that uh, RCA dog white with a black ear and black eye. And I was five years old. I seen it through the pickets of the fence. And I went home and told my mother that I'm going to get the puppy. And there was no answer, no puppy. So needless to say, I cried my eyes out until I got my way. So that's how I got the first, first dog. So that you... first dog was, the first dog was wicked. It bites people. So I, I had a litter of pups from her where I kept a dog. Uh, it was red and white. It looked like a beagle. I didn't know beagle at that time, but 
when I remember how he looked, it looked like a beagle. And I was, at that time, maybe seven or eight years old. I went pretend hunting all the time with that dog. And he was chasing rabbits to no end. It was a lot of training. And local hunters begged me to go with them because of that dog. And that was the beginning of me and the dog and chasing rabbits. <laughs> so, so, so Branko grew up in Goss Beach which is actually, as an aside, the town where Nikola Tesla went to the same, to the same high school Branko did. Oh. So it's a very famous town, really. And um, Branko moved to Zagreb, Croatia, the capital, and, um, and then in 1968, um, he went through Vienna because Croatia was then Yugoslavia and mm-hmm. it was still a communist country. And he uh, went through Vienna, Austria, the capital, and he arrived in Canada in 1968 in Winnipeg, Winnipeg, Manitoba, not speaking a word of English. Wow. Uh, um, So those were difficult days in those those days. I came originally from the Netherlands and had a dog all my life. And uh, that I can remember, and um, I also came in 1968, but we didn't know each other. And uh, I arrived in Ottawa and moved to Winnipeg, uh, Manitoba, in 1969. And then in 1970, uh, Branko and I met, and the rest is history. Wow. <laughs> Here we are, that many wow. years later, 52 years later. Wow. <laughs> 52, so, uh, 52 years? Correct. Oh, wow. It'll be 53 years this year. And um, so that's, you know, that's our personal life. Yes, ma'am. So from Winnipeg, um, we decided to move to uh, Toronto, Ontario, and um, that's where we had our first people. Um, we uh, had all the belongings. Fitted in Pontiac station wagon yeah. that we drove from Winnipeg there, and that was our move. That's it. 23 hours straight. Wow. I remember it like yesterday. So we arrived in Toronto, and we made a life for ourselves. And then within a year or two, we decided that we needed a dog. But we wanted a dog that we could have in the house, but that we could go hunting with. And we decided on a beagle. And um, that first beagle was a very good beagle. We were lucky that we got a really good dog. And uh, and uh, so that first beagle, her, her nickname was Rhea, but her registered name was Jimmy Giocoso. And she was in the house, and we bred her, and we had nine puppies in our bedroom closet. <laughs> and uh, <laughs> then we they moved into the living room. And uh, by then we had a, a baby. I had a baby. So I had lots of time on my hands to look after my own baby and look after her and the babies. Yeah. And 
one of the offspring of that litter uh, was the very first registered beagle that Armando Pazienza ever had, and she became a champion. <laughs> yeah. Wow. But then, and she was bred to Winterborn Winterborn Boomer. But in the meantime, we had also acquired um, Anna's Anna. When we were we used to run Zaya, and then one day we were, you know, hunting with her, and this stranger come out of the woods with a pack of six dogs, and we absolutely were hooked on having a pack of dogs. We just absolutely loved it, and um, but we needed another dog, and um, through him we actually went to the Oshawa Beagle Club to which we still belong, to which we have a lifetime membership. And we met uh, Terry McBride, who remained our good friend forever, and Jeff Montgomery. And uh, unfortunately, Terry passed away. But Jeff is in his 90s, and we still speak to Jeff. And it's Jeff who gave us permission to buy a bitch and her name was Anne's Anne. And in every one of our pedigrees today is Anne's Anne. It all goes back to Anne's Anne. That's true. And she was a phenomenal dog. Um, she was a great hunter, gunned over all the time. She lived long. Um... When we moved back to Manitoba, she was came along together with more dogs we had then. She never finished for a champion, but she had double the amount of points uh, for a champion. But oh, she really? was not a pussy dog. She, she, she. I don't know if you want to call it the fault or what. Uh, when she would run. And, and had a check, uh, she would solve the check, and then she'd lift the head up and go, ooh, ooh. She'd call every dog in the park to come and get it, and they would take it away from her, and then she'd go on. So <laughs> she she had a hard time getting wins, but she had tons of points. She had enough points to finish twice, but she never did, but she was, regardless, she was a great dog. She was out of a dog, a Fanfield champion called um, Antrim Hill Spot, and her mother was a bitch called Peggy Ovanerie, and we, and we knew Peggy Ovanerie. We hunted over Peggy as well, and Peggy Ovanerie had a white ear, and uh, a lot of people know that we still get white ears. That's where it came from. <clears throat> Peggy Vannery goes back to Fish Creek breeding. So that's a long ways away. Mm -hmm. uh, but you know, Mike, sometimes people tell us, oh, you started with this stud or that stud. No, we started with Anne's Anne. She was bred to very good dogs, and she, and she produced very good dogs no matter who she was bred to. They were always exceptional dogs. And it goes to show how important a maternal line is. 
Yes. Yes, absolutely. And Anne exhibited all the traits that a brood bitch should have, and she passed that on not only to her daughters, but her sons carried that genetic ability as well in their in their bloodline. <laughs> Anne would have big litters. She had tons of milk. She would never lose a puppy. She cycled regularly. She did all the things that you want in a brood female. And like I said, she she is. If you go in our pedigrees, she she is the base of it all. She is absolutely. So, I see her in a lot, everything. I see her in everything. Like Anne was bred, for instance, to Dingus McRae. Um, Dingus, um, Dingus was uh, the first, she was the first sire, first bitch in Canada to be bred to Dingus McRae. And we had just moved to the farm, and we had no money. We were poor as church mice. And, um, but, uh, we managed to scrape the money together to send her all the way to Massachusetts. The stud fee was $250 in those days. That was in 1977. Wow. I cannot believe that people still today only charge 200 for a stud <laughs> fee. It makes no sense to us. Yeah. But regardless, um, Bob Nichol owned the Dingus McRae. He was a lawyer and an absolute gentleman. He was very helpful, and um, he shipped her back, and she had puppies. And in that puppy, we have a picture of the breeding. Yeah, it's a picture of the breeding on our website, <laughs> and in Dingus. And um, but it's far back in everybody in 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 the breedings. But Dingus, that breeding produced Branko's white lizard, for instance. And close call girl. And Branko's close call girl mm-hmm. came out of that breeding. And Jack of all trades came out of close call girl. Yep. Came out of close call girl. So that's where the the thing started rolling. And the and the other side we have injection of uh, East Coast trimmer that was crossed to Dingus McRae. Uh, th- those were the two studs. Yeah, they were most dominant at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, I myself preferred Dingus because he was more complete of a dog than uh, East Coast Trimmer. Uh, but East Coast Trimmer was was very good dog, but he he had little. Uh, I won't talk about the faults, but. Uh, his record speaks yeah. for itself. He, he had enough points to finish three times for international. Danny Kane of, uh, in Ontario used to handle uh, uh, Trimmer. But Anne was also bred for instance because we have some blue ticks. And, De- and Anne was bred to a dog called Musky Leg Levi. He was not a champion at that time. I don't know if Musky Leg Levi ever finished. And Levi was no. owned by Jerry Lawson of um, Michigan. Michigan, and he was a blue tick dog. And um, Musky Lake Levi was out of a very well-known dog called Field Champion Lakeside Snowflake. 
The mother, sweet-talking Belle, his mother was a blue tick female. And that's where all our blue ticks come from. Well, let me... And uh, that breeding... Go ahead, I'm sorry. That breeding. Yeah, so Anne Bretumuscule Glevi produced field champion Brancus Dutch Visca. Mm-hmm. And, you know, and that appears in a lot of our pedigrees because Dutch Visca became the mother to Branko's Pretty Freckles, who was a big blue tick, full 15-inch blue tick female. So that's another strain in our dogs that is very dominant. Uh, the, 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 how come that I bred to Musculate Levi? I marshaled in one trial where Musculate Levi was entered. He didn't finish that uh, uh, in the trial winning it or nothing. But I loved that dog. I loved the intensity of his working the check and hard working, hard working. He was digging all the time. And I loved him. And I bred to him. And we got champion out of that breeding. Yes, and to me, that's an art. When you can breed two dogs that are not champions, and you create a champion. Absolutely. That means you've done right. Well, you know... It's um, all about... Go ahead, Mike. Uh, to that point, you know, I, I'm, everybody that knows me knows I give, I give blue ticks a hard time. And, uh, and so that is wonderful information as to where Musky Leg Levi came in and, and how you guys seen him, how uh, uh, Branko watches him run. He sees the qualities and things that he liked in him to make a decision on, on breeding to that. Um, I give all my buddies a hard time about blue ticks and different things, you know, and, and, and I've had several over the years. Um, and then some people will say to me, say, because they know I love the, the Branko bloodline, and uh, they'll say, uh, well, well, Branko raised blue ticks, and I'll say something like, yeah, uh, we're going to get that straightened out one day, you know, or something, you know. And uh, But, it, you know, just in jest and joking, we have a have a good conversation about it. But I did not know that is, uh, and I'm sure many other listeners didn't know that that's where the blue tick line came in. That is very good. That's awesome. It's all the blue ticks in my kennel came from Musculate Levi originally. Actually, the very first blue ticks in North America they were imported in the in the 1880s, 1880s, by Hiram Card of Elora, Ontario. He imported a blue tick um, female, and, and a blue tick male, sorry, called Dyke, D-Y-K-E. He imported a male from England. And in the 1880s, people were importing from England left and right. And I have a book that is from the 1924. I have a lot of books about beagles. Mm-hmm. And in this book, they show a lot of photographs of the beagles from that day. And you know what? All the dogs were open marked. They were not black, white, and tan like we see today. None whatsoever. They were all open marked. Uh, I, they had their confirmation left a bit to be desired by today's standard. Mm-hmm. But... They wanted a hard-driving dog, a dog that could run all day because hunters run all day, and they were tough on their dogs, but they imported dogs. The first official field trial in North America was in 1890 in Hyannis, Massachusetts. 
That was the first field trial ever. And it kind of expanded from there on. And 30 years later, there were field trial clubs, beagle clubs in, in Michigan, in Ohio. They went south. And that's when people started to breed for different types of dogs, mm-hmm. depending on their terrain and, and game. That's when you started seeing a bit of a split. But until then, dogs were kind of all the same. But they were open-marked dogs. Wow. And I, it was, it's very interesting to see how, how dogs have evolved from there on in. But the standard that we see now in, in shows, for instance, and people like their black blanket, black, white, and tan dogs, that was not an issue at all. Color was not important whatsoever. Hmm. And if truth be told, we don't breed for color. Whatever nature gives us, we're happy with. And yeah. we have very open marked dogs, and we don't really care because the main thing is a whole bunch of other main things. And Branko can tell you that what we're looking for. Yeah, and that's what I wanted to touch on a little bit right there as far as Branko. What, what is it that you're looking for as far as qualities in the parents uh, prior to? I know you've touched on it a little bit. Well, let's delve in a little deeper on that and, and to what is your the qualities that you're looking for when you decide that you're wanting to breed these two dogs, when you decided you want to breed Dingus McCray and Anna Zan and making these crosses throughout the years and then and then raising them up, watching them and deciding how you're going to do that. Kind of, kind of delve in on that a little bit and explain to us your thought process behind that. Well, that's a little lo- longer discussion. You see, we were in different position then than now. At that time, I didn't have the kennel, and I didn't have the choices. The choices were given to me by by Beagle World, and I figured I'm gonna read to best at that time best dogs that there is, and. Those were the two males that that I uh, considered the best two males, East Coast Trimmer and Dingus McCray. And, 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 and Winterborn Boomerang. And Winterborn Boomerang. So those were the, the beginning stats. Now, I didn't have personal experience uh, on, on their parentage and so on. So that was kind of uh, shot in the dark, it was risk that I think that people take easy nowadays when they have more information than I had. There was no internet. Uh, so, but that, that was the, the, the beginning, and, and then from there on, it, it became different because I would like to know when I decide on the breeding as much as possible on the whole family that I'm breeding. That means mother, grandmother, grandfather, grand, grand, whatever. So that's how I selected the future stats and future names of the, the letters. And that's how I'm selecting now. But now I'm in a much better position because I have five, six generations of my own dogs where I know every one of them in the pedigree. I not just know 
and what he does. And that's the, the criteria that you got to go when you're selecting your studs and dance is uh, know everything possible and never breathe to fold, faulty doll. Try to eliminate the faults or eliminate it to that point that, that you can correct it. Uh, it's it's uh, breathing in genetics is not exact science like math. One and one is almost two. In breeding, that food could be anything. So that's why you got to be careful and select from knowing generations back. And not be blinkered. Yeah. One, one thing is, if you have an average female or a below average female, and you, we would never breed a below average female, never ever, mm-hmm. because when you want to produce puppies, you want to be better. Even to this day, after 50 years of breeding, we still want to be better in the next generation. That will never go away. The, the, the big mistake we see is that people breed a below-average female, and they think to breed her to supposedly a really good stud. Well, that just doesn't work. You might get lucky with one mm-hmm. in a litter, but those below-average traits are going to carry on. Mm-hmm. So you need to, bre- you need to breed good to better or best. That is what you have to do. Mm-hmm. And never breed based on paper. Absolutely never. That's right. Pedigree is an aid, but never ever a reason uh, to breed. That is a huge mistake we see all the time. People send me pedigrees <laughs> and they say, well, this is the sire and this is the dam. What do you think this is going to be like? <laughs> and I always tell people, we don't breed paper. Everybody would have terrific dogs if that was so easy. So my question is always, what do you look to improve? What are the traits you can live with and you can't live with? I never get an answer. I never get an answer. <laughs> yeah. So when, when we're looking at a stud, you know, we know all the males that we breed to in and out. We raise them. We raise their parents, their grandparents. So we know you know, what faults there are in the pedigree that you don't want to strengthen. You know, there is no perfect dog. Mm-hmm. There never will be a perfect dog. You know, there's, there's no perfect human. Yeah. But, yeah. you know, um, the thing is, you have to never be blinkered. you got to have the knowledge to know and recognize what is in your own dogs that you need to improve. Right. But... So if you have a mousy dog and you breed, her, breed him to a bitch that has way too much mouth, uh, too little mouth, way too tight, people do this. Mm-hmm. You can't do that because in the offspring, you might get some that are way too mousy, some that are too tight, or you might get one that is kind of in the middle. But those are false that you shouldn't breed. Well, when, when you do select, for breeding, you breed to a dog that is most perfect in those traits that you are trying to improve or eliminate out of your bitch breeding, for example. You're going to try to find a dog that is, let's say, uh, she's 
that uh, about Mouthy dog. You would not breathe too mouthy or too tight. You'd breathe to a most perfect dog uh, with the mouth. And then, then you are getting generation of puppies that have on one side faulty bitch that, let's say, it was loose in the mouth. But then you got another half of the genes that they are perfect from the dog that you chose. So next generation, you're going to have two of the perfect dogs. And and only one in that family is going to be with a loose mouth. And that's how you slowly keep eliminating bad traits. And after maybe five, six generations, you're going to uh, eliminate that the, the weakness or fault that that other one had. That is uh, a long process. Yeah, that's a long process. That's what I was just fixing to say. That process is extremely long. And as we know, you've done it for, for many years. Um, I'm often asked the question, how do you, uh, how do you breed this particular bloodline, whether it be Branco or other <clears throat> different ones? And I don't have the answer for them, but I remember a conversation that, that we had several years ago, uh, Branco and I, we had the conversation. It was, one one of the days I called up there and and, and you actually answered the phone, uh, uh, and we were talking about this and we were basically talking about mirror breeding the these things and that's pretty much what you're talking about today, right? You're you're wanting to mirror out these particular um, the good um, over the bad, and that goes for physical traits as well. You know, uh, all the traits. All the traits. All doesn't the traits. matter. Uh, if you want to get rid of something, that doesn't happen overnight. There are some traits that are much easier to get rid of than the others, but it still will take you time, and and it, it will take you observation. That's why I am not so crazy about gadgets that we are using today judging dogs and stuff. You gotta go in the bush and you gotta see marked line. Mm-hmm. And that's the secret. See the marked line and see which dog is doing the best job on that marked line. Uh, if you would have a, a color for a rabbit and you know which way the rabbit goes, then, then you could use a gadget. But otherwise, I don't find it much helpful. Mm-hmm. He, I bought him GPS collars, and he, he <laughs> sold them because because of exactly that. Because we constantly see people, and they send us pictures of look at my dog. It ran twelve miles today, and 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 you know, in here, this and there, wherever the rabbit, the dog went. But you don't know from your GPS whether the rabbit went exactly that same way. Mm-hmm. So unless the rabbit has a GPS, uh, you don't really know. You still have to go into the woods. It Did the dog skirt to go into the front of the pack? Did he get there honestly? Or is he lagging behind the pack? Or just judging the dogs coming across the path doesn't tell you a whole big lot. It mm-hmm. tells you some, but it doesn't tell you how did that number one dog get to the front? 
because if they had a check way back in the woods and you didn't see who solved the check, was that the number one dog or was it another dog? Was it number three or four dog? You don't know. Mm-hmm. Well, so sometimes the dog that is in the middle of the park is controlling the park. Yeah. Yeah. You 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 can't tell that by by your GPS. You gotta see the rabbit. You gotta see the rabbit. You gotta see Mark Lyon. and you gotta see who's in control. Dogs can be milling around the dog that is controlling it, but you can tell pretty quickly which dog is the one that is holding the pack and the line and everything in, in control. And that's your dog. That's your winning dog. And then they're coming to a check. Dogs recognize each other's body language. Oh, and, and voice and everything. Mm-hmm. They, they will honor the guy that is, that is clean and, and that is accurate. Like sometimes they know a dog will lift up its head if they're milling around looking at it and doing check work. And they'll quickly take a peek and see what these other dogs are doing. And they'll recognize the dog that has solving the check. People fault a dog for doing that. That's a smart dog. There's nothing wrong with that because why would that dog go and waste his time when he can see that another dog is is about to solve the check? Mm-hmm. That's okay. A dog that stands around with his head up and he waits and sees what's happening for like a minute or a half a minute, that's faulty. But just to have a quick peek, that is what's called pack work. Because beagles are pack hounds, and they work together for the benefit of the pack. It's prescribed in the rule book. Mm-hmm. He's got to contribute to the pack. And he can't not contribute if he doesn't know where, where the action is. The only way he's going to know where the action is if he takes a peek and goes quickly and works. So I would never fault the dog for lifting head and take a little peek mm-hmm. to see where the action is. But if, if, the, if the going into the into the woods that is really, really important, and I know there's people that run in briars and it's not as easy as where we have it here, although we have some really thick bush as well. And I can tell your listeners that sometimes Branco's like a ghost. I go running with him and I'm watching dogs and I'm listening and he's gone, and I don't know where he is. He's gone with the dogs. You know, he's 80 years old today, but he's still like a ghost. He's, I can't find him. <laughs> well, the, on that same uh, on that same point, there um, going into uh, the training process and things that you have uh, in watching these dogs, which which ultimately goes into the breeding program or 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 does not is something that they show you along the way with the qualities that you want to see um that brings it to that point and being able to see so you guys are definitely putting the work in and have for many years to see it to know it and to realize which goes back to your point about breeding to uh, uh muscular levi it wasn't that he won the hunt that day but you saw how he done the work and uh and so that's that all makes good sense right there and that's you know a lot of times we leave that part out um when we're watching dogs we get caught up on that front end dog and and things or that that just that solid check dog that we hear a lot and uh 
so we we're I think we're all guilty um, as far as I know that I am of uh, leaving out those particulars um, that you're talking about right there. Um, well, you got to have a dog that is a hard-working dog. You know, that is, like when, when we go running and we load the dogs and we let them go into wherever we're going to be, within five seconds, dogs are gone. We never start a rabbit for our dogs, never. Like if our dogs go to trial and they start to tally-ho, they don't have a clue what tally-ho is <laughs> right. because we don't tally-ho for them. They have to do the work. If you're a hunter... You don't want to go out there and find a rabbit because if you do, you don't need a dog. It's the, you're the dog. You're the dog. <laughs> so you're going to have to go out there. When you train and start puppies, they start on their own. We have by the house two forty, fifty 50-acre um, enclosures just for training pups. And there's not very, when we have rabbits, there's not very many rabbits in them. They have to learn to find a rabbit. We don't do it for them. They have to learn to do that. And we like to start them young. We don't believe in, in waiting until they're almost a year old. We think that's way too old. Our pups, when given a chance to run, will start between around four months old. And But our dogs, pups here at home, they start on their own. We don't start them for them. And they start. And, you know, we have them not too far from the house, and all of a sudden you'll hear them yipping, and sure enough, there they go. And it doesn't, once they start, they get better every day. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, after three months, you can gun over them. <laughs> that's right. Yeah. And that's worked for these many years, and uh, it's worked for you guys and other people that, that do something similar, not exactly. Uh, it works for them. Um, leading up to this, um, process when you're getting ready to go to the training pen there's a lot that goes into getting these puppies up healthy and ready to go and i know frida i know that you do a lot of the uh the raising of of the puppies and the nurturing mm-hmm. i know the just recently you just raised a whopping litter of 11 puppies um and you mm-hmm. raised them all and that's a testament to your knowledge and all and also to the to the bitch that's raising those pups and doing a good job how about, uh, tell us a little bit about what goes into that and the nurturing process and things that you do to kind of help sure. that process along, if you would. Well, aside from the genetics, um, <coughs> you have, on the physical part, you got to make sure that your sire and bitch are really in good shape before you breed them, which means they have to be fed well, uh, you have to have a, vaccinate. you have to vaccinate, you have to deworm them, um, in summer, all our dogs are done monthly for fleas and tick prevention. They're done for heartworm prevention. They're always vaccinated. All our vaccinations are always up to date. We buy all our vaccination, all our medical supplies from our veterinarian. I think it is hugely important to have a really good working relationship with your veterinarian. And I always like to tell people, try to find a vet that also does large animals. There's not much money for vets to do large animals, but they do it for the love of the trade. And so uh, we have a really good relationship with our veterinarian, if need be. We can call them any time, day or night. But in terms of here at home, you buy a really good dog food. All the dog foods have to have certain parameters, and uh, whatever dog food is you, you buy, there is one item 
that I'm going to mention, and that is calcium and phosphorus they, and potassium. Those are the things that you really have to check. It might not be on the bag, but every good dog food company will give it to you. Then at the time of breeding, the dogs have to be in tip-top shape, not too fat, never have a fat dog, but you certainly shouldn't have a skinny dog. A dog in good shape is a dog that you can freely feel the ribs but never see them. That is how I always judge the dog. So after the breeding, at the time of breeding, the bitch is dewormed. No matter, she might have been dewormed a month earlier, I worm the bitch again at the time of breeding. And then during the pregnancy, you watch her that she doesn't get too fat. They're brought in two weeks prior to whelping. They get their nails clipped, they get a bath, they get wormed again. And then they're in the whelping box where they are. A week before they're due, the box gets heated, and they're heated from below. If you have a heat lamp on top of the dog and on top of the bit, the puppies, they cook. Puppies lose most of their body heat through their tummies, not through their backs, through their stomachs. So if you have the heat below the dog, you can control it by raising or lowering a heat lamp. And so when the bitch is whelping, if she starts to whelp in the evening, I don't go to bed. I, I stay up until she's done. And that why, that's why we don't lose puppies. That's right. If I need to help her deliver a puppy, I will do it. Sometimes when a puppy is born, it's still in the sack. It hasn't broken. So then you break the sack and you make sure the puppy breathes. It is really important that those puppies get that first suck of the first mother's milk. It's called colostrum. And that is the same for all mammals. It's the same for cows. Uh, it's the same for dogs, cats, humans. They all need that colostrum. The reason why they need that colostrum is the inside of the gut of the puppy, the, 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 they are able to absorb antibodies that come in with the mother's milk. And it gives the puppy... All right, I would like to thank Branko and Frida there, along with Mike. Some fantastic stuff. Uh, that is part one of two of this podcast. Uh, we will have more with them next week. Another great, great show next week, too. Some very informative stuff. Very interesting people. Uh, good job, Mike, on getting them on the podcast. And good job, Branko and Frida. Uh, very, very good stuff. Uh, this will be the end of part one. Uh, you guys look for part two next week. We appreciate you listening. she never die of starvation Although she'll never eat Maggie the mud full of bravery and guts And always at my Showing her howl is long But she refuses to die Maggie will live 100 years Longer than I Maggie, the mud's always down in a rut Looking for some bone that she buried the mud don't get scars, only cut. She loves me and will not share me. Oh, she loves me.
share me.